warms hearts and for others it threatens minds. Um, I do, as you know, in the Dean's Lecture, a potpourri of things. Uh, it's uh, an opportunity for me to talk about things I'm interested in and things that I'm studying um, and an uh, opportunity for me to take tentative walks out on, out on thin ice. We have an implicit contract here that heresy may be the norm uh, rather than abnormal, uh, but I think it's uh, part of my own personal growth has been to uh, test things and try things. On the other hand, I am a priest, have been for 20 years, and uh, it's not um, unusual for me to read the Bible or for me to uh, lecture from the Bible or do a Bible study. As a matter of fact, I do one every week. Somebody asked me, uh, do I read the Bible? I, probably I read it more than I don't read it uh, because my, with my own personal devotions and as well as doing Bible study during the week and going to church as many as three and four times a week, I get around to the Bible right frequently. Um, <coughs> On Friday, uh, Friday is my day at home to work, and I work in my study and uh, develop my lecture and my sermon for Sunday. And on Friday, I was made aware that the lessons for the week, the first lesson, the second lesson, the gospel, used to be the Old Testament, New Testament, uh, and gospel. This week is uh, two New Testament lessons, one from the Acts of the Apostles and one from the book of Revelation, and then the gospel is on that wonderful line from Peter following the Passion Week and enigmatic resurrection, uh, wondering what to do next, and he decides to do what he knows to do, and that is to go fishing. So I'm preaching at 11 on I'm going fishing, um, which is what I did after the resurrection, it went yesterday, as a matter of fact. Isn't somebody going to ask? <laughs> Six and a quarter pound bass. Uh, it was on the lake of Tiberias. So on Friday, as I was looking, and I've been always fascinated by the post-resurrectional appearances, and that is to say that the resurrection in itself is a, a um, sacred story and a doctrine, and then in another uh, theory, an archetype of uh, the psyche that must be fulfilled and will be fulfilled, uh, the resurrection is powerful and and I lectured some about it last week as the, the audacity of Christianity to claim and proclaim the resurrection, uh, but does it have any relevancy for Wednesdays in October? And so I talked about decision-making as one way last week, as one way that the resurrection has function, realizing that every decision is death-dealing and life-giving, and that when we're on the horns of that dilemma, not choosing between the good and the bad, we tend to want to choose the good uh, in order to please mother, if nothing else, but I think probably out of our own conviction as Christians, we want to do the good thing, uh, but we're not always sure what it is, and generally my decisions are between two bads 
or two goods rather than between good and evil. So I talked about that, the resurrection, but I'm fascinated by the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. And let me say some things in general about them, and then I want to talk particular about a post-resurrectional appearance that we don't talk about very much. Because in the lectionary for this week, the two juicy sacred stories that any preacher or teacher would like to grab hold of are the one that says, I'm going fishing, which I will do at 11, and the other is uh, the conversion of Paul on the road to Damascus, which is what I want to do as my Bible study with you this morning and try to exegete that piece of scripture. But I want to be, again, in general, in talking about the post-resurrectional appearances because I think it's important for us uh, to glean some of the truth in our own time about Jesus appearing to his friends after his death. There are two or three of them that I think you're more familiar with than you realize. And one of the things about, I think most Christians, uh, in particular I know more about Episcopalians than I do other Christians, but the thing about us is that we tend to have much more of a faith than we're aware of. And secondly, because of that, most of us are not probably very able to articulate our faith. And I want to give you permission to be in a broad um, expanse of human beings in that situation. That is to say, finally, that you probably know a lot more about the Bible than you know you know. And these resurrectional appearances, if I ask you to please name for me the resurrectional appearance, post-resurrectional appearances, you probably uh, wouldn't be able to, off the top of your head, articulate them because it's not the kind of thing, in my experience, that um, many people ask of you. I mean, has anybody been asked to name the post-resurrectional appearances? Now, I know that there are some of you who would be able to do it better than I. So I don't mean to castigate everybody by this generalization, but my guess is, as I throw this net out, I'm going to catch more who are not able to articulate than I am those who are able to articulate. Be that as it may, they are. Such appearances as uh, the road to Emmaus. Remember that road, wonderful road to Emmaus story where it has the, the wonderful summary line, and he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread, where he walked with these two on the road to Emmaus, and they were discussing the events of the most recent past, and here one joined them, and they didn't recognize him until they went to table with him, and he was made known in the breaking of bread. Now that is a, is a seminal story in terms of sacred story about uh, beginning to demonstrate and dramatize the ownership of our own instincts and appetites, and that is to say, going about the quotidian task of being alive, that you're probably going to discover <coughs> Jesus in the midst of something as common as eating. Church has taken that very seriously. And so with the Last Supper and the Road to Emmaus, we have a beginning of a very strong Eucharistic tradition within Christianity. Now, the other appearances we had last week, for instance, the appearance of Jesus to the disciples in that upper room where they were huddled together for fear of the Jews, and Jesus comes in the midst of them, appears in the midst of them, and says, my peace I give to you. And uh, that was the setting where that they had 
literally gotten together out of two or three needs. One was for protection, that is to say, that they thought if they're going to kill him, who's next? And so it says, I wish it said for fear of the authorities rather than fear of the Jews because it has a remnant in there of anti-Semitism that I think is inappropriate. And that is that I don't think that they were so much afraid of Jews as they were afraid of authorities. And that's what they were uh, in the upper room about. Uh, so many wonderful things about that story. One of them, of course, is this um, strange, glorious, uh, confusing, anti-fact, irrational appearance of Jesus in that upper room. And that is he appeared in the midst of them. Now, we get the implication that if they were huddled together in this room for fear of the Jews, that they probably were not huddled together with the doors open or the windows open. So we can, by a minimum of logic, uh, deduce that the doors were shut and the windows were shut and he appears in the midst of them. It doesn't say he came through the door, he knocked on the door, and part of our tradition is the fact that he appears. Now, I like that, and I like it for two or three reasons. One is because it is a, a beginning prophetic word about how Jesus is going to appear to us post-resurrection, and that is to say he's going to appear to us at our meals, and he's going to appear to us in our fear. I think that's a nice thing to begin to think about. And in the, appears in the midst, and that is, if he is able to be in two places at the same time, and if you read the scriptures carefully, as I'm sure you will, you will see... Because somebody might ask you sometime at a cocktail party, can you name the post-resurrectional <laughs> appearances? You know, it happens all the time, right? <laughs> You'll begin to see that in the post-resurrectional appearances, he appears in two places at the same time, which has been difficult for most people to do. And then the, for if he can appear in the midst of people without coming through doors or windows, and we begin to think about this, and we can think about it in several ways, and I think the simplest way is maybe the best finally, rather than going to uh, the scientific uh, brain uh, lobe, we might go to the imaginative brain lobe and say, hmm, it appears that he has a body that's fit for his new life. Now, we have bodies that are fit for this life, uh, some more so than others, but indeed uh, all uh, <laughs> present, present company included. But Jesus, following his death and resurrection, was given a body that was appropriate for his new existence. Maybe that's about all we can say about what happens to our bodies after we die. The evidence, the rational evidence is fairly clear and even uh, part of our proclamation is that the body goes to dust. And when Paul talks about the resurrection of the body, that word body there does not mean corpus, it does not mean soma, it means personality. And that is another, a better way to say that, I think, when we say we believe in the resurrection of the body, you all say that weekly, and you say it every week. Those are two different things. <laughs> I mean, I think for years, a lot, of the, a lot of the creed I said weekly, I believe in the resurrection of the body. <laughs> so that's something we say weekly. 
Come on, you. What'd you pay to get in here? <laughs> Not the best jokes, but they're the best I can do. I believe in the resurrection of what embodies me. Now, does that help? Good. I believe, you know, I, the people I love, I, I love what embodies them. And what embodies them is not just their body. And so to believe in the resurrection of the body means I believe that whatever it is that embodies you will continue post-grave. And so Jesus had what they were able to recognize in him was what had embodied him because you remember on the road to Emmaus they didn't recognize him right away. Now, I like that, and I think that's important because it took what his embodiment was before they recognized him, and that was in the breaking of the bread now. That's a new place for his embodiment for us, a nice surprise. What a nice surprise. What a nice surprise that he was able to appear in fear. In the fear, he just appeared. Now, that I guess... For, for our literal minds, we want to think that he was able to walk through walls to appear. But you see, that's appealing to uh, a logic that defeats what I think the scripture's saying. And that is, no, what, if he had a body where he was able to walk through walls and were seduced into uh, believing that Jesus um, just was resuscitated and this time he was able to do magic. Rather than the mystery of what the scripture is saying and that is post-resurrection he is able to appear to us in our food, he is able to appear to us in our fear. And let's not trivialize the mystery by trying to make it fact. Now that seems to me to be a way to approach the post-resurrectional appearances, and I think an important way. We have another post-resurrectional appearance that we'll be dealing with at 11 o'clock for those of you who are able to stay, and um, you will be charged for getting in there, so... Uh, <laughs> might want to consider that. And that is uh, the fishing story where Peter says, I'm going fishing, and Jesus goes back to their, and appears to them in their work, in their identity, in their normal life. So the thing about the post-resurrectional appearances that I want to emphasize to you is uh, the wonder and mystery of the fact that he appears in food, he appears in fear, he appears in vocations and jobs, normal existence. So that we need not now go, uh, mythologically we understand that the searching for the Holy Grail always means leaving and going out to search for it and the, if you remember the irony of the search, yeah, that the Grail was... I, th I thought you probably did. <laughs> uh, the grail was in the castle all along. 
Uh, there's some a wonderful Hasidic story about that that I'll tell at 11. Uh, but the... the <laughs> You can put a dollar in. You don't have to pay a lot to go. <laughs> the point is, I'm going to be preaching about that 11, but in those resurrectional appearances, you see that where Jesus appears is the two places he does not appear. <laughs> that might be helpful, a way to say it. He does not appear on mountaintops, and he does not appear in church. I think those are two interesting things. He appears when folks are fishing, when they're afraid, and when they're eating. Think about it. Now, the other resurrectional, post-resurrectional appearance that um, that when you are enumerating these to your friends as they are asking you about they, where they are, this will be the one that will really prove your brilliance in in biblical scholarship, and you'll list the road to Emmaus. You'll uh, uh, list the fishing story, and you'll list the appearance to them. They were huddled together in fear of the Jews, and, and there will be a reflective brilliance in your ability to do that. But this is where you will stun the crowd. <laughs> when you remind them of the post-resurrectional appearance to Paul. Oh, yeah. Forgot about that one. Now, I'm going to talk about the post-resurrectional appearance to Paul as another piece of teaching about uh, Jesus' appearance after his death, but I've got to do a little background work for you in order to get at some of the subtleties and genius in uh, this particular biblical story. As you know, uh, we pick up Paul in the Acts of the Apostles, which is a continuation of the book of Luke. Luke uh, was a historian and wrote his gospel according to himself called Luke. And a continuation of that gospel is the Acts of the Apostles. So sometimes this body of work is known as Luke Acts. And in which we have a early history, sketchy as it is, uh, opinionated as all history tends to be, it still is the early history of uh, the, the fathers and mothers of our faith. And so in the Acts, we pick up Paul. But I want to skip ahead to a speech by Paul. I think this is one of the nice uh, things that when you are given the time and skill and responsibility to do excavating in Scripture, uh, I just con I continue to find gems that, uh, that uh, uh, I hadn't seen before. And so on Friday when I was doing the work, the thing I was aware of is, if you remember, that by tradition and of the Scripture, the first appearance of Paul was at the stoning of Stephen. And that's the saint's day that is right after Christmas. And I've always loved that about the Christian calendar, the fact that we celebrate Jesus' birth, and then the next day we celebrate the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr of the faith. And that is to say that this is the cost of this birth, that to be a Christian has its uh, apparent and incumbent costs. And at the stealing, stoning of Paul was, in essence, 
a, re a reporter for the court and a sort of cloakroom monitor. His job was to go attest that this person had been stoned and he was dead and he held the coats of those people who were picking up the stones and throwing them. And that was his job because he worked for the Sanhedrin. Now we find evidence of Paul's teacher in the uh, 22nd um, Ver, the 22nd chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. So before I get to the Damascus Road experience, I want to talk about a little bit about Paul's background that I think influences the story in wonderful ways. Here we have Paul who's been arrested. Uh, Paul is being persecuted himself for being a Christian. Uh, Gamaliel is his teacher. And um, uh, Paul makes this speech in Jerusalem defending himself. And he says, Brothers and fathers, give me a hearing while I make my defense before you. When they heard him speaking to them in their own language, they listened the more quietly. Paul says, Paul was a Greek citizen, you know. Uh, one of the great things about Alexander the great, was that he gave a universal language, and so there was a language that Paul knew, which was Greek, and not many of the disciples did, gave him a leg up, so to speak, and he was able to speak to non-Jews. He said, I am a true-born Jew, a native of Tarsus in Cilicia. I was brought up in this city and as a pupil of Gamaliel. I was thoroughly trained in every point of our ancestral law. I've always been ardent in God's service, as you all are today. And so I began to persecute this movement to the death, arresting its followers, men and women alike, and putting them in chains. For this I have as witness the high priest and the whole council of elders. I was given letters from them to our fellow Jews at Damascus, and had started out to bring the Christians there to Jerusalem as prisoners for punishment. And this is what happened. I was on the road and nearing Damascus when suddenly about midday a great flash from the sky all around me and I fell to the ground. Then I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And I answered, tell me, Lord, who are you? I am Jesus of Nazareth, he said. Now that's Paul's account of what happened. The subtlety in there is that he's justifying himself to the Jews in Jerusalem by saying, look, I'm a Jew. I studied by the greatest rabbi that is the greatest contemporary rabbi, Gamaliel. Now if we go back to uh, the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, when they were the church was just beginning and there was a, a period of persecution and there was some question about whether we ought to be persecuting these Jews and what should we do. And so they yielded to the wise rabbi Gamaliel, who I've just told you in chapter 22, Paul claims is his own teacher. And Paul had been sent out by the Sanhedrin, if you remember, at the stoning of, of uh, Stephen. So here in Acts Five, we hear from Gamaliel. 
This touched them on the raw, and they wanted to put them to death, and that is those who were claiming that Jesus was the Messiah. But a member of the council rose to his feet, a Pharisee called Gamaliel. Everybody with me? Paul's teacher? Good. A Pharisee called Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in high regard by all the people. So that's why Paul had appealed to him in Jerusalem 20 chapters later. He moved that the men be put outside for a while, and that is those that they were threatening to persecute. Then this wise rabbi, Paul's teacher, stands up and says, Men of Israel, be cautious in deciding what to do with these men. Some time ago, Theudas came forward, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. But he was killed, and his whole following was broken up, and they simply disappeared. After him came Judas the Galilean, not to be confused with Judas the disciple. Thank you. After him came, after him came Judas the Galilean at the time of the census, and he induced some people to a revolt under his leadership. But he too was killed, and his whole following was scattered. And so now, just keep clear of these men. For I tell you, leave them alone. For if this idea of theirs about this Jesus being the Messiah, for if this idea of theirs or its execution, that is, the proclaiming of Jesus as Messiah and its distribution throughout the countryside, if it is of human origin, it will collapse. But if it's from God, you will never be able to put them down, and you risk finding yourselves at war with God. Isn't that nice? That's a speech that we don't often hear and probably don't have integrated into our own sacred stories. Paul's teacher, the one who Paul was schooled under in the law, when asked, by those persecuting the early Christians, what should we do? He said, this is not new. Prophets have risen up before. And he named two that had come, proclaimed some kind of truth. There was a revolt. A crowd gathered around him and followed them. They were killed. And after they died, so did the movement. And he said, this is another one. If it's of human origin, it will be like these others. The prophet rises up, makes a proclamation, is killed, and all the movement dies. But if it's of God, no matter what you do, you will not be able to eradicate it. I like that. Now, when you hear the Road of Damascus story rehearsed, uh, you don't usually get this kind of background about Paul and his teacher and Paul's preparation. You don't get the sense of the wisdom coming out of Judaism at that time, and that's why I am a little uh, uncomfortable with that line that they were huddled together in the room for fear of the Jews, because uh, the Pharisaical Judaism and the authorities 
uh, was a different from uh, much of the wonderful wisdom that was an underpinning for Jesus. I mean, if it wasn't for the wisdom of Judaism and the covenantal theology and the relational theology of monotheism and the emerging Trinitarian expectation that came from the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed in life after death. It was the Sadducees who didn't. And you're saying to yourself, you're giving us more credit than we deserve, and that is, what's the difference between a Pharisee and a Sadducee? Well, maybe, maybe the easiest way to talk about that is that it's a different emphasis within the tradition, almost like a denomination within Judaism. And that is that the Sadducees were uh, more interested in the law and its interpretation than even the Pharisees in some ways. The Pharisees, uh, of course, were the ones who were in power in Jerusalem, and they were the ones who had the responsibility, and they were the ones that Jesus was after most. And so we have this idea that the Pharisees were the bad guys in this story. Well, um, in a very limited way that's true, but it was the Pharisees also that began to massage the consciousness of Judaism about the Messianic hope, and began a Trinitarian expectation, and that is to say, yes, there is a God, the creator of the universe, and we expect that God in history, and that we expect that that spirit is a part of us that never dies. Now, that's, that's the beginning of a Trinitarian formula. It doesn't mention Jesus by name, of course, and that was one of the stumbling blocks for the Pharisees. They said, uh, he is, that this Jesus of Nazareth is just like this Judas from Galilee and uh, Theudas who came uh, forward claiming to be somebody. He's just another of the prophets. But the prophecy of the wise rabbi who taught Paul was, if it's of human origin, it will collapse. But if it's from God, you'll never be able to eradicate it. All right, so here's a little background then to the Damascus Road uh, story. I'm now in chapter 9 of the Acts of the Apostles, moving quickly toward uh, running out of time. Meanwhile, Paul was still breathing murderous threats against the disciples. Now, I'm not going to take the time to read to you the stoning of Stephen, which I'd planned to, uh, but just take that for granted, uh, that, that it is in the Acts of the Apostles, and that he was out to persecute the Jews, I mean the, the new Christians. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing murderous, murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord. I've read to you Paul's account of the Damascus Road experience. This is Luke's account in the Acts of the Apostles. He went to the high priest and applied for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, authorizing him to arrest anyone he found. That's what Paul's doing there. Men or women who followed the new way. That's the way of this new Messiah. And bring them to Jerusalem. While he was still on the road and nearing Damascus, Suddenly, a light flashed from the sky all around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Tell me, Lord, he said, who are you? The voice answered, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you have to do. Meanwhile, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, they had heard the voice, but could see no one. 
Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could not see. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. He was blind for three days, took no food or drink. There was a disciple in Damascus whose name was Ananias, and he had a vision in which he heard the voice of the Lord. Ananias, here I am, Lord, he answered. The Lord said to him, go at once to Straight Street, to the house of Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. You'll find him at prayer. He has had a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him to restore his sight. Ananias answered, Lord, I have often heard about this man and all the harm he has done to thy people in Jerusalem. And he is here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, You must go, for this man is my chosen instrument to bring my name before the nations and the kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him all that he must go through for my name's sake. So Ananias went, he entered the house, laid his hands on him, and said, Saul, my brother, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me to you so that you may receive your sight, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately it seemed that scales fell from Paul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Thereupon he was baptized, and afterwards he took food, and his strength returned. Well, that story, I think, is familiar to you, but it's got, I think, some wonderful things to be excavated. Now, the underpinning of this story, um, I believe, is Paul's radical devotion to his religion. Paul was a not only a good Jew, uh, he was a faithful Jew, and he was employed by the Sanhedrin or the, the council of the leaders of Judaism as a, a uh, court reporter and as one who was then sent out as a sort of bounty hunter for these Christians on the way. Now, um, I will uh, t take a story like this, and if I'm given an hour alone with it, I will find things that aren't in there. And, and when you do that, it's okay. And I encourage you to do that in Scripture when you read things and you realize that those things aren't there, but they're there. And you wonder where that came from. Well, it's very simple. It means it's in you. That's just a little clue for Bible study and meditation, and that is when you see something in here that's not here, but is really there, you must realize, I must be in this story, because that's a part of me. For instance, I was fascinated by this almost uh, axiomatic theory that that which you oppose the most is that that you most need to love. Well, that's based on this whole idea of opposites, and that is the things that you hate the most and the things that are you're most obsessed and possessed with. Well, that's God's way of saying, you need to pay attention to this. If it's another person, that is to say somebody you find extremely obnoxious or extremely attractive, 
then that means probably there's something of you that you need to proceed toward cautiously within that person. So it is with movements and ideas and institutions. I've said this before in, in a, just a smaller personal way about part of the reason I'm a, I'm a priest is because I had such a bad experience with the church as a child. Uh, when I was told that if I didn't become a Christian, I would go to hell and the worms would eat my eyes out. Do you remember that story? Uh, made me infuriated about the church and infuriated about uh, this uh, gospel and so forth. And, uh, and so I pursued that which I feared the most. Here goes Paul. I mean, Paul is possessive, obsessive about uh, this Christianity. Not only did he really enjoy the stoning of Stephen, but he wanted to go to the high priest, get permission to go all the way up to Jerusalem to begin to get these people. Watch out, Paul. Anything that you're that absolutely fanatic about, um, there's something going on in that that is of you. So we have that sense beginning with Paul and his obsession about these people on the way. That, by the way, was the early name of the Christians, if you don't know that the people on the way, or the people of the way. And so he went to persecute the people of the way. Now, the second thing about the story that I think is very, very important, and that is why it is that Jesus, if Jesus was a, rab, a wise rabbi, just at least on the, the uh, uh, human nature of Jesus, if Jesus was a teacher, uh, a wise rabbi, and if you remember the word uh, rabbi really meant my teacher, not just teacher, but my teacher, and he had all of these people who considered him their rabbi, their teacher. If he was any, had any wisdom at all, he would have picked better people than he did to represent him. Um, I think one of the things we need to learn from this story is those of us who say, well, we're not worthy to represent Christ, uh, well, who, who is? <laughs> I mean, Peter, the rock on which our church was built, um, denied that he knew who he was. Judas, one of the twelve, you know, if you remember, uh, betrayed him. Thomas didn't doubt it that he existed after the resurrection. And here is Paul. I mean, they name cities and candy bars after these characters. <laughs> Peter and Paul are the, the um, are the foundations of this culture. I mean, the, the, their names are ubiquitous. And here they are, deniers, and here's Paul, who stood there gloating when the first martyr was killed. What is there about this Jesus? When you're talking about scales falling off your eyes, when I first realized that the people that were the foundation of the faith were so not just human, they were radically human. I mean, as a friend of mine says about St. Paul, St. Paul was just like everybody else except more so. <laughs> the audacity of Jesus to come back and say to Peter and Thomas 
As I was sent, so I send you. And I preached last week that had Judas just, had Judas been able to stand his despair one more day. Incredible lesson. You know, Judas was despairing because he had betrayed the Lord, but no more so than denying him as Peter. We don't know why Judas wasn't able to stand that despair, but a lesson for you and your friends, if, if Judas could have just held out one more day with his despair, he would have been in that room, huddled together for the fear of the Jews, and Jesus would have appeared and said, my peace I give unto you. And it's not just peace, it's that shalom. It's that loving, relational peace I give to you. And as I was sent into the world by God, my Father, as I am sent into the world, now I send you, Peter, Thomas, and Judas, had he been there, would have been sent. He could have waited one more day. I mean, it's a tragedy of that story is that if Judas had awaited, he would have been the one who was sent out to represent. And here we got Paul being sent out. Paul is a guy who is attesting, licking his lips at the stoning of Stephen and holding the coats of the rock throwers, going to Jerusalem to kill Christians in the name of God. Hmm? Literally. And these are the people that Jesus chooses. Well, when I finally got in touch with that, I finally decided I could become a priest. I mean that. I mean, the, the requirements for becoming Christian, uh, there is only one. And that is the desire to do so. It's the only requirement. And if you ever want to get dressed up and prepared and perfect before you represent God, you'll just never quite get around to it. And that's difficult for us. It's very hard for us to go out and represent God when we know uh, what we have in our own closets. But what Scripture does is open the closets up and say, well, look, look at the saints' closets. It's okay. You don't have to be perfect to represent Christ. So much more in this story. I'm going to have to quit, but but let me say an, um, a couple of more things about the story that are very, very important, very important to me. And that is, in some ways, this has been a terrible story for Revelation. Look at all of the other post-resurrection stories in comparison to this one and realize that being blinded on the road to Damascus is not the definitive way Jesus reveals himself. And that definitive means that everything must be compared against this, that this defines revelation. And most of us uh, have sat uh, sort of waiting in our own mediocrity for a Damascus Road experience. And so there's a big negative thing about this story, and that is, well, you know, God has never called me the way he calls St. Paul. And so uh, this is not the definitive story of uh, being called uh, to represent God or called into Christianity or called into yourself or whatever else. Most of us, present company included, are called over a series of events in our lifetime. And so don't look at this story as the definitive way and don't sit on your own uh, donkey waiting for um, God to come and knock you blind. There's some other things in it that are very important. If you remember, he was blind for three days. Uh, 
there are periods of time for all of us that we have to sit in darkness or be in darkness, and it is that metaphorical death that we all have to go through in order to get to a new life. It was last week when I was lecturing on decision-making, saying every decision is death-dealing and life-giving, and that there is that anxiety between the two that moves us to some resolution. And the faith and the hope of the Christians is that we know, we are aware of, that there is resurrection that's stronger than any death, so that we can go ahead and make our decision. But that the death is real, and there will be days of darkness. There will be days of despair and disillusionment. This is the human and Christian journey. And that so you have to sit three days sometimes. Even Jesus had to sit three days before the final revelation came. So you need to be patient with that. And Judas and Paul are two good examples of people who were in the dark. One couldn't stand the dark and betrayed himself, and the other one waited and his eyes were opened. I recommend the Bible to you. I've enjoyed reading and sharing with you. Thank you very much.